Welcome to Transition, the podcast for farmers seeking to secure a more sustainable future for their farm business. In this series, we'll be examining farming methods which are said to be profitable, but which can also help to protect and enhance the environment. We'll be asking, do they really work? How can they work for you? And why might you want to consider them on your farm? From the Farmers Weekly News Desk, I'm Johan Tasker. Today we're visiting family farmer James McCartney, a beef and sheep producer who farms near Oakham in Rutland in the East Midlands of England. It's a 160 hectare grass-based farm, that's about 400 acres, and in his quest to become more sustainable, James says he has three key goals. Improving his grassland, gaining disease-free status for his sheep flock, and reducing his carbon footprint so he's better than net zero. So I'm the third generation of our family to farm on this farm. My granddad moved onto the farm in the 1930s. Uh, It's a farm of about 400 acres, um, predominantly livestock production, although we do have a bit of arable production as well, but that is to serve the livestock enterprises. What are you trying to achieve as a farmer yourself? Well, ultimately to make money, I suppose. Uh, That's the the number one concern. Uh, But... A growing concern is that I'd like my business to be sustainable for another generation. Um, I'd like there to be a viable business. If I have children, that there's something there, if they wanted to, that they could carry on for another generation. We're we're a pretty typical mixed family farm. You know, 400 acres is a small farm, but there's a lot of three, 400 acre farms in this area. Um, so I'd say, yeah, we're, we're really typical of the area. We're on the we're pretty close to the fens where there's much bigger arable farms, but. In this area, it tends to be a mixture of sheep and beef and arable. And tell me about your sheep and beef enterprises. So we have got, uh, well, this year we'll be lambing 600 North Country mule ewes. Um, we put them all to a terminal sire, although I have plans to increase that with a second flock of self-replacing sheep. Um, not decided what breed we're going to go with yet. And we have, well, at the moment we've got about 150 store cattle on the farm. So we buy those in at three to four weeks old as calves and take them all the way through to finishing. You talk about the need to be profitable. You see yourself very much as a, as a family business. You've mentioned the beef and sheep enterprises. What's your farming philosophy in, in terms of trying to make a profit and, uh, and make those uh, enterprises as successful as they can be? I guess with the sheep and beef enterprises, there's a real change in focus now towards forage and getting as much daily live weight gain as we can from forage as opposed to cereal crops. Uh, We used to creep feed lambs up until about five, six years ago. We've made the decision to stop doing that. So our emphasis now is on growing good quality forage because it's a much cheaper way of fattening sheep and and cattle. Um, That forms the basis, I guess, of how I hope my farm will be sustainable in the future. You've also got some stewardship. Tell me about your herbal lay. Yeah, so we entered the countryside stewardship mid-tier scheme uh, two years ago. Uh, We've gone with a couple of options. Uh, One of them is overwintered stubble, so we grow our own whole crop silage um, and get paid to overwinter the stubble. The second option we went for was the multi-species sward, one of these herbal lays. Now, we have tried to establish this crop uh, two springs, well, this spring and the previous spring, uh, without a huge amount of success. So we're, we're 
not really sure where to go forward in terms of getting a productive crop off 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 that field that also satisfies the environmental needs of the of the stewardship scheme and that's a, a sort of fundamental challenge that you uh, that you face then i guess let's go and have a look at it James, we're standing in the corner of this herbal lay. What can we see? Well, I think we can describe it as patchy at best. Um, so this field was drilled in May this year. So we had to wait for some moisture. It was a very dry April and it was drilled as soon as we could in May, but it hasn't established anything like as well as we would like it to. Certain species have taken. So as you look around, you can see that there's quite a bit of plantain and some of the clover has established but the grass varieties and the other herb varieties haven't established anything like as well as we would have hoped. Do you know what the issue is here? I'd say there was a combination of issues. Um, I think spring drilling doesn't lend itself well to to this crop. Um, I would also think that this is acidic soil and some of the legumes prefer more alkaline land Um, so perhaps we ought to apply some lime. Other than that I can only suggest that there's moisture is probably the problem that we had. So when we drilled it, it was it was dry. We waited for rain, but then it was, as you know, it was also very cold at the start of May. So that's that's the only thing I can think that didn't allow this to germinate as well as we'd like. Ideally, we would drill this in August or September to allow it to establish over the winter, so that we had something then in the, in in the spring the following year that we could utilise. So what are you going to do with this? I mean, you, you're saying about lime, you could lime it, that kind of thing, but uh, there's not too much on a, on a slope like this that you can do in regard to, to the moisture. Yes, so we have got a crop established. It's not a crop that's as good as I would like, but whether we go back through, we buy some more seed and go back through and broadcast it later in the year just so that there is more cover in the field that's probably what we'll end up doing but this field is certainly not going to be ready to graze this year which is disappointing what you what i didn't say was that we actually tried to establish this crop 12 months ago and had even worse success but at that point we tried to direct drill it into an existing grass ward didn't work so we cultivated and drilled again and it's yeah, it's not worked. <laughs> so you've tried a number of different establishment methods and uh, and it's uh, not been successful. Both of which spring drilling, but the only thing I'm left to think is that autumn drilling would be a better option. So this is not necessarily a husbandry problem because you've got a good crop established in the adjacent field uh, and that's been successful. We're about to go and look at a crop of, well, more conventional hybrid grasses and clovers that we drilled on exactly the same day with exactly the same drill into exactly the same seed bed um, and that that crop is doing really well as we're about to see so james we're in this uh, field here already it's looking a lot better than the other one and yet it was uh, drilled on the same day using the same same methods it was but the difference here is that we've got known varieties of grasses and clovers that are productive so this is a product that we bought through Cotswold Seeds from Germinal uh, and it contains some of their ABBA grass varieties and, and clover varieties. So why has this field been successful and the other one not? I guess it must come down to the prolificacy of, of the varieties that we've used. I mean our intention actually was to put spring barley into this field but with the dry April we missed our drilling window 
Um, so we drilled this with grass, yeah, first week of May. Um, so we will take a late first cut off that. We've taken our first cut from the rest of the farm, but this will end up being a first cut probably at the end of July. Uh, and then after that, it will be used to either fatten lambs or to flush ewes before topping. Explain to me the theory behind the plantain. Well, I guess similar to the multi-species sward, the inclusion of the plantain in this crop was driven by the fact that we've had periods of drought every year for the last four or five years and that's becoming an increasing problem i know if you speak to my parents in their generation yes we had the odd hot summer when it didn't rain but it seems that we have periods of two three months now every year without any or with very little rainfall so the plantain is deeper rooting so it should provide some resilience if we don't get that rain where the grasses are shallow rooting the plantain should still be able to find water and continue to grow giving us something to graze if it doesn't rain and resilience is going to be of course key to your quest to, to make the farm sustainable it is i mean resilience and not being reliant on on inputs or purchased inputs is definitely something that we're going to have to explore more widely we'll see later on when we go to another part of the farm some of the tenanted ground is poorer quality permanent pasture it's not that it doesn't grow grass but the quality of the grass is poor and it's not well utilized by the livestock so we need to look at ways that we can improve the species of grass in that in that sward to increase our daily live weight gains per hectare Ben Wixey is National Agricultural Sales Manager for Grassseed Specialists Germinal. Multi-species lays have many advantages, he says, if you can get them right. The advantages are multiple, really. There's advantages for the animal, there's advantages for the soil and the environment. For the animal, you're getting a selection of different plants uh, with different energy and protein contents, and obviously the different root structures of the different plants are dragging up different minerals as well. Uh, some of the plants that we can use in multi-species lays have anthelmintic properties, so you can also have uh, you know, reduction in worm burdens and things like that. From the soil point of view, the different uh, root um, architecture gives you, uh, you know, the ability to break up any soil pans. It also helps increase the, the friability of the soil. It can help with soil bacteria, the fungi, the worms. Um, and obviously, a lot of these things are legumes, so they're fixing nitrogen to feed the other crops around them. From the environmental point of view, uh, you've got flowering plants. So for insects, uh, you know, we're providing habitat and food sources for the inver invertebrates and importantly for crop pollinators. So there are many different advantages of multi-species lay. The other thing that is very important, the it's live weight gain that's, that's, that's seen by the uh, young stock in particular and growing a frame on an animal is is very impressive with uh, multi-species lays whether it's gs4 or a, or a specific multi-species lay because you're building that carcass and that meat on the animal and you're getting that from the balanced energy and protein that's being provided so how do you establish a multi-species lay the difference between multi-species lays and ordinary grass and clover lay is that you've got a whole range of seeds that are by nature not as aggressive as the modern perennial that we've bet, uh, that we've bred. So you need to have 
the right conditions to establish them. The, a lot of these seeds, yarrow, for example, is almost a dust. You know, the seed is so small. So you must have a really good, fine, firm seed bed. The soil temperature needs to be warm. The pH needs to be above six as a, as a, as a prerequisite. We want moisture at drilling time and, and often. We need good soil fertility, so good P's and K's, and all these things need to be checked and addressed well before you you uh, drill the seed or broadcast the seed. Drilling depth is important because of these seeds, because many of them are so small, we can't bury them deep in the ground. They really want to be just below the surface, broadcast and rolled in to keep the moisture there. And that's 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 the secret to it, having a good seed to soil contact and moisture around at the time of drilling. That's Ben Wixey from Germinal. Farmers are facing significant change in the years ahead, so how can they make the most of the opportunities? We speak to Tim Coates at New Agricultural Bank, Oxbury, to find out. As a farmer, I've been adapting my farm to ensure we continue to make profits after BPS. I've taken on new ventures and access financial support, which would have been impossible without cash flow forecasting my diversification options. That's why we built Oxbury to meet the needs of British farmers. So why is Oxbury best place to help? We know that cash flow is king and that repayments must match the seasonality of British farms. Our relationship managers all have farming backgrounds, so your conversations with us are based on empathy and knowledge. We offer working capital, flexible credit and long-term loans with tailored repayments, all on competitive terms. Oxbury is proud to be the new financial partner for farmers facing transition. To find out more, visit oxbury.com and begin your transition today. You are part of a local discussion group when it comes to uh, improving grassland and that kind of thing. Tell me about that. We're not in the Welland Valley, but I'm part of the Welland Valley Livestock Discussion Group. We meet probably six times a year and they're probably the six most valuable days or afternoons of my year in terms of sharing information it's really refreshing to sit down with farmers who aren't painting a perfect picture of their farm. The way that we get better is by telling each other what we're doing wrong rather than what we're doing right and then improving those things. And we've got some quite forward thinking members in that group. Everyone's open-minded. So we're all prepared to try new things because we've all got the same goal ultimately. We're not, and we're not competing with each other. Our competitors are Australia and New Zealand not the farmer next door. And I guess a problem shared is a problem halved. Completely. I mean, and if we can share knowledge, then we can hopefully make, make changes on in our own businesses to, to improve productivity. Give me an example of a change that you've made then that has improved the productivity. Well, what we're standing in now, say five, six years ago, we were relying solely on permanent pasture to try and fatten livestock and we were having very little success with that. We've taken this land out of arable production and moved it into more high-performing hybrid varieties, which will have a better effect. James, everyone who's involved in your business seems to be bringing something different that benefits the business. Collaboration is really important to you. It is. I mean, we're very fortunate that we've got some really good advisors, but then also with the other members of my family, that everyone has complementary skills. But I'd say that more widely as an industry, it's probably really important, particularly in the next few years, when we are having to compete with imported products that we actually work together as a community i mean historically we in all areas i'm sure farmers look over the the, the hedge or the field gate into their neighbor's field and criticize what they're doing and, and and think critically about it i think it's time that we all 
helped each other a bit more and that's one of the refreshing things about our discussion group is that we're all genuinely there to help each other and that discussion group's coordinated by liz Geneva. yes so we're really fortunate that liz is local to the area so she previously ran the discussion group under the guise of well when she worked for the hdb but we've continued that on and she is uh she might not want me to say this, but she's industry leading in terms of the knowledge she has on sheep in particular, but also growing forage, which is a really useful asset for us as we try to make our businesses more productive and sustainable. The Welland Livestock Discussion Group is coordinated by beef and sheep consultant Liz Geneva. She explains the topics they talk about. So we've got the common, like this year, I mean, there's the sort of day-to-day stuff. So at the moment is about grass and uh, lots of grass about and how to control it. Um, for sheep it's around weaning decisions and lambs going off and the price dropping and and I think there is the general feel that they know the basic payment scheme is is changing um it's really unclear what the environment schemes might look like um and so people are starting to think but the how and the what is really unclear still so they're they're pondering quite a lot of things and but they're still, they don't think they have quite enough information to make those big decisions, whether they need to change a system, whether they don't, whether they need to find new income streams. Um, but a lot of the farms I work with are, are trying to find different sort of business angles. So whether it's direct selling or whether it's um, bringing diversification type opportunities onto farm. So they're always interested in what else is out there that they can try. You're right in that we know the basic payment scheme's going, but we still don't have enough information about the new Environmental Land Management Scheme, or ELMS. What can farmers do to make sure they're best placed when that information is eventually forthcoming? At the moment, what I do, with other discussion groups as well, I do a bit of a discussion about how much your turnover is coming from BPS versus farming versus non-farming incomes. And that's not about judgment. That's just about getting people aware of what their figures are and sort of a business health type element. Um, and I think it is, and we generally know, there is technical efficiencies to be made on every farm. So it's then helping them prioritise where is the best place to pitch your efforts and you can't ever do all of it so where are your two or three things you can achieve that year so it's sort of they're very aware of what is looming they haven't quite got all of the bits of information they need to make some decisions but i think it's giving them some stuff to think about now that they can do that is always doing men to make positive change and whether whether the motivation is because of carbon neutral or they want to be close to carbon zero or because they want to make more money so do you mean there's a way there's we've got lots of different ways of motivating people but the principle is the same which is technical efficiency where are you where do you need to be and where do you see the welland valley livestock discussion group going liz do you see groups like this becoming more and more important yeah and i think that so there's nice examples wider so um the flock health clubs are an example in the sheep sector which is where vets run their groups and um there's some nice examples from some AHDB work or QMS where the discussion group is quite an important part of that knowledge exchange program um I suppose the the challenge I have with a Welland group is it's a really nice sociable group and they get on and we have a nice trip out actually how do you keep pushing that on as a business development group and then being confident now and enough to share figures so for me the group sort of in the next six to 12 months needs to be a bit more open to sharing figures rather than it is a very nice day and we talk about those technical issues that the queries but we're not really getting into the business bit 
fully yet. So I think that's where those groups will have to be. If we think of these sort of analogies across from the dairy sector, do you know more benchmarking groups with a bit of discussion? I think that's what we're sort of aiming towards. But the 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 farmer members need to be asking for it, as well as me nudging them towards that. A lot of it is confidence, is about and trust in the people around you to make sure that everybody is happy to share those figures. And it starts with lambing percentage. Do you mean it starts with technical figures and then builds up into more financial ones and. And I suppose the analogy that I use was when you go to New Zealand, they quote loads of business figures at you and on other sectors, I suppose, as well. And we have them. We just aren't confident always to talk about them. So it's it's just getting people more confident in what they want to share, how they want to share, how they define their business, particularly business skills are an area of focus in terms of where we haven't got skills yet. We can we can sort sheep out and we can do cattle and we can do the we are excellent stock people, but it's the business skills that we need to develop. That's beef and sheep consultant Liz Geneva. Hey, it's Jasmine from KWS UK. We're honoured to be a part of transition and helping UK agriculture move towards a more sustainable future. I'm here today with Marcel, our Global Sustainability Manager, to discuss why it's also an important topic for us across the world. We at KWS see sustainability not as a state one can be in, but as an ongoing endeavour. We are convinced that plant breeding can and actually must play a key role to create both a sustainable and successful agriculture of the future. To do so, we keep it simple, ensuring that each decision we take is economically viable, ecologically durable, and socially desirable. Focusing on more than just our products, we embrace the various aspects of sustainability and accept the responsibility that comes with it. Thanks, Marcel. If you want to find out more about us and plant breeding, please visit our website, kws-uk.com, or you can check us out on social media. What's your favourite part of the farm then, James? I mean, I genuinely love working outdoors every day. I feel really fortunate, but I'm, I guess I'm most passionate about working with the stock, um, particularly the sheep. Um, not a lot of, well, a lot of people don't like sheep, <laughs> but um, I get huge satisfaction when something goes right in the livestock enterprise. But actually, it's not just about that. It's about not everything goes perfectly every year. You've just got to try and change small things every year to increase productivity the following year, haven't you? And you've got some of your sheep up here in a pen that we can go and have a look at. Yeah, so there's a group of about 200 ewes that have been weaned um, in mid-June. So they've been put onto some grass that's been retained from earlier in the spring to try and recover post-weaning and get back to condition in order to be put to the ram again in September. So we're standing in front of about 200 North Country mules. I have to say, James, they look really good. They do. So these sheep will all be retained for breeding next year. Um, We have quite a stringent culling policy because we faced various challenges with the flock. Now, we noticed that three or four years ago when we had a much lower scanning percentage than we have historically had. Initially, we put that down to trace element deficiencies when we took a first round of blood tests. Uh, but working with the vet, we took another round of blood tests and found that, yes, somewhere we had purchased in uh, made a visner, 
uh, it's a wasting disease that has uh, an, a serious effect on productivity of the sheep. So we're now going through the process of trying to eradicate that disease from the flock. We're pretty understocked on this farm and any expansion would mean, well, I do plan to expand the sheep flock probably quite significantly, but when there's MV present in the flock, it would be probably quite foolish to breed your own sheep because you're effectively breeding sheep that might have MV. So we're looking at going down the accredited route. Um, There is a system of testing that you can do that means your sheep are accredited against MV. Once we're well onto the road to that, we will then start breeding our own replacements for a second flock. Um, and testing any incoming animals before they're incorporated into the flock. I mean, we're quite lucky in terms of we do have two or three different holdings. So the sheep standing in front of us, although they look well, uh, these would be, in inverted commas, dirty sheep in terms of they've been exposed to MV. So we have to try everything we can to keep these away from uh, the clean sheep. And that doesn't mean just them not touching each other nose to nose it also means me remembering to disinfect my boots when I go between the holdings and to use different drenching guns for instance and ensure that I don't put the same mineral block out between two lots of sheep it's probably one of the most significant challenges to our business now and that doesn't just mean what I do but it also means working with our neighbours to ensure that they're also taking it seriously What sort of lambing percentage are you getting here? So these sheep will have scanned at 190% and we've probably lambed them at 175 and we'll sell those at around 170%. So given the situation that you're in, the challenges that you face, that's not too bad. It's not disastrous, no, but previously with North 20 mules you'd expect them to scan over 200%. So uh, seeing a drop-off to 100, well I think the younger sheep scanned at 190 and the older ones about 185, you'd expect that to be at least the other way around, the older the sheep should be well over 200%. So I guess it's not disastrous, but in terms, if you look at the sheep system as a whole, it needs to be more productive and eradicating disease is probably the most significant step we can take on the way to that. And one of the key people who's helping you to improve your productivity is Rebecca Davenport from Rutland Veterinary Centre. Rebecca, what's your strategy for dealing with this? Is it is it a hard culling policy? Yeah, that's it. That's a really difficult thing. So different situations. Some people are able, they will just cull a whole flock and start again. Um, with numbers though, and with trying to develop and increase numbers, that was quite a difficult thing for James to do. Um, fortunately for him, he's got quite a lot of grazing areas, areas that he can buy new stock um, and we're monitoring them and bringing them on as MV clear keeping them separate as we slowly work through um, and cull out um, the the rest of the MV positive so it is a hard disease unfortunately to to deal with especially on a kind of commercial and high number basis as well. And what sort of timescale are we looking for to be able to deal with it? And what will we see coming out the other side? Yeah, so we started this, this was four years ago, wasn't it, James, that we started testing, found it. And then since then, um, we've been slowly working through the flock. Um, James has been culling really hard with those um, and any other reason for sheep to kind of go, unfortunately. And then, as we say, we've been managing the replacements differently, keeping them separate 
working forward with those but yes it's going to be kind of a five ten year plan really in that sense with how James set up work and like I say each farm is different each can do it in different ways but this is our kind of way of trying to kind of keep it going as a sheep flock but then improve the breeding kind of long term as well and that's one of James's other aims is is to start breeding his own um, replacements so then you're reducing the risk of introducing the disease into the farm um, each year when you're bringing in um, those ewes that are going to kind of fill the um, flock going forward. So is it a healthier flock, more productive flock? Yeah, and that's the thing, actually. Unfortunately, with MV, it's, yes, you see probably um, a small percentage of the flock wasting away, but actually it's the underlying effect of MV, especially in the younger years of those ewes that have first contracted it. And like I say, it's a high mastitis rate, so you're often culling high for mastitis. Um, it reduces their immune system, so more susceptible to worms, to other infections, and overall reduces that fertility. So it's, it's yeah, a really difficult disease, unfortunately, that has a greater impact not just on their you know health and welfare of those individuals sheep um, but as a flock as a whole as well unfortunately. British farmers will always see feeding the nation as their priority and rightly so but as British agriculture itself moves into a new era changes in the way we grow and produce that food are inevitable. At Barrenbrook we're committed to supporting British farmers through this transition. You may think of us as a grass seed breeder In fact, we're one of the UK's largest growers of grass seed, but we're much more than that. Because no matter what type of farm you run, when it comes to managing its crucial elements, the aspects on which your productivity is founded, soil health, water management, biodiversity and carbon storage, nothing beats the power of grass and grass-based crops for your grazing, your rotation and your crops. Barrenbrook's grass and forage genetics provide British farmers with practical agronomic and environmental gains. Find out what we can do for your farm today. With the nature of the land that we manage, so a lot of it's tenanted and we're only allowed to graze sheep on that, there is probably a ceiling to how much we can expand the beef enterprise. So we buy in 100 to 120 calves every year and then we have the previous year's animals as well. So there's usually around 200 animals on the farm. I guess the, the plan for the next three years with those would be to to incorporate better forage into their diet so we can try and reduce our costs that way using less cereals but the health status and definitely purchasing just from a single source rather than through auction markets I mean we've already seen a significant uh, improvement in terms of the animal's health from doing so the cattle is something that we've not managed to get rid of concentrates for yet. We still, it's still a big part of our system. Um, we finish cattle and that still relies heavily on, on cereals. Whereas with the sheep, it's much easier to, to create a system that relies solely on forage. And I guess that's one of the goals that we have in improving, improving the grassland that we're, that we're managing. Our real goal is to try and get these killed before they're 600 days old. So, we work on a basis of a kilo of live weight gain per day, so we try and get them to about 650 kilos in under 600 in under 600 days, and they'll be going. So these ones in front of us are registered sire Angus, uh, so they'll go um, through one of the supermarket Angus schemes. But we've got other ones. So through the gate to my left, there's a group of well, they're Frisian cross. Um, they're also dead weight, but we won't receive the Angus premium for those. So we try and do it in as short and intensive period as possible. Uh, so we lamb the sheep in March and I like to bring the calves in immediately after lambing so that 
I'm already in like intensive work mode uh, and we'll try and get in as many of the calves in a six to eight week period at that point because they do require quite a lot of care in those early days when they arrive um, and it's important that the same set of eyes is looking at them on a daily basis because even small changes in their behavior indicate that there's a potential di- disease threat particularly pneumonia um, which is why we, we vaccinate them all um, but we get them in in roughly batches of 10 at a time um, so we'll try and get in 10 batches of 10 uh, over that eight well eight to ten week period i suppose the two key enterprises on your farm are both red meat enterprises you've got beef you've got sheep in the mind of the consumer red meat is a key contributor to climate change to global warming to greenhouse gas emissions but that's something that you care about very passionately so much so that um, you're embarking on a nuffield uh, scholarship yes i'm very fortunate to have been chosen uh, by nuffield to undertake a study looking at ways that the red meat sector in this country um, can counter people's environmental concerns and I think a lot of those are legitimate we probably need to focus on doing our job better rather than starting an argument with environmental campaigners or, or, or the vegan lobby I think we need to make sure we're doing our job as well as we can um, I guess for our business I wanted it to be more sustainable and I wanted to have a product that I was confident selling and that that product, yes, was profitable but didn't damage the environment. But I wasn't really sure how I do that. And I'm hoping that the Nuffield study will allow me to travel and learn techniques and learn from consumer insights in other countries to see how we can have a positive impact in, in this country. And actually being part of the Nuffield fraternity has already had a big effect on my self-confidence for myself. Um, I feel in a more confident place to make positive decisions for the business. And when you say countering consumer concerns, this is not about propaganda, this is not about saying red meat's fine, etc, etc, and environmentalists or or vegans or or vegetarians are wrong. This is actually about adapting and changing your uh, management practices to uh, reduce the carbon footprints of, of the enterprises that you that you have yeah i mean we've got a lot of challenges coming up in the red meat sector uh if you look at various trade agreements we're we're currently undergoing at the moment we have to tell our consumers that actually purchasing british meat is a much more acceptable option in terms of the environment than purchasing something that's been imported from the other side of the world. The only way we can do that is by proving our environmental credentials. So we've got to do a lot more with the assets that we've got, whether that means improved genetics or improved grassland management or previously we've not lambed sheep as ewe lambs, but whether we try and take an earlier crop of lambs from them as well, all of these things added up should improve the productivity on the farm. If we can improve what we're doing in terms of what we're growing in the ground, so we we can show that we're sequestering more carbon as well, um, combining that with increased productivity should mean a net gain in terms of the, the carbon calculator of the farm. So James, you want to be better than net zero. Have you done anything about it in terms of measuring where you are at the minute? We are looking into the various um, online calculators to work out your carbon footprint. And it'd be interesting to monitor that over the time, particularly with our own objectives of increasing stocking density on the farm. 
I'm interested to see how we can balance those two things in order to make the farm more profitable in, in favour of the core enterprises, but also not increasing our, our footprint. So it's going to be a fine, fine balance then? Like everything in farming, if you increase one thing, it always takes away somewhere else for sure. <laughs> So overall, we've seen today the challenges that you face. You've got a great farm business here, great family farm. You're doing everything right for the environment that you can. Um, do you see a bright future for the sector? I'd like to say yes. Um, I think a lot comes down to what Elms looks like, um, particularly for smaller farms like my own. Um, but I'm confident that we can make it make something work here, be it intensifying the, the core aspects of the farm, with some environmental work as well, but also diversification. Yeah, I'm confident we can make this business viable and sustainable. Transition farmer James McCartney, thank you very much. We look forward to following you on your journey. That was Rutland beef and sheep farmer James McCartney talking to me, Johan Tasker, for the Farmers Weekly Transition podcast. You can find out more about James and the Farmers Weekly Transition project by visiting us at fwi.co.uk forward slash transition. The website there contains lots of advice and ideas about farming in a way that is profitable as well as being good for the environment. We'll be visiting another farmer soon as they seek to secure a more sustainable future for their farm business. Until next time, goodbye and thank you for listening.